Fantastic. And without meaning to, uh, that that anthem is going to uh, complement my introduction beautifully. So, and it was not planned. So fantastic. I love when that happens. And the Lord works that out. Fantastic. So if if you have uh, your Bibles with you, I ask you to open up to Isaiah 49. We are making swift progress through our series in Isaiah 40 to 55. We are up to 49. And this chapter sort of brings to a close the first big sweep of this section, which is from chapter 40 up to 49. Whereas in chapter 40, at the very, very first words, famous words that begin Handel's Messiah, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And in this chapter, when we come to the end, God calls his people to rejoice because he has comforted them. So a beautiful sweep from 40 to 49 as we... Look at how Isaiah rounds off this first big, big section of chapters 40 to 55. So I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 7. I'll ask if you would please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is Isaiah 49, and we'll read together verses 1 through 7. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Listen to me. O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations and that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, Abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in this word today. Father, we give you thanks that you have inspired your word, that you have revealed your truth to us. I pray now you would open up this text for me and those who hear and write your eternal truths upon our hearts. Conform us to be more in the image and likeness of our Savior Jesus so that we can go from this place 
believing all you've called us to believe, and eager with a heart of faith and joy to go and obey all you've called us to do. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. World premieres have a long history. Today we hear about the red carpet events for the premiere of new movies. Uh, Sarah and I are very excited that finally October 8th, the latest James Bond film is finally going to come out. They've tried to, it's Daniel Craig, we love Daniel Craig, and they've tried to release this film three different times, and finally they said, all right, forget it, we're just going to do the red carpet event, and the movie's coming out on the 8th, and if no one goes to see it because of COVID, fine, but we're not sitting on this any longer. We've got to get this movie out. World premieres. But prior to the film industry, world premieres were held by the elites of society for great pieces of classical music. Concert halls around Europe in the 17 and 1800s would be packed to capacity in anticipation of that next masterpiece. Beethoven's famous Fifth Symphony premiered in Vienna, Austria, on December 22nd, 1808. And this piece is an undisputed masterpiece, and it is perhaps the best-known piece of classical music in the world. Uh, All of you recognize this piece instantly when you hear it, even if you couldn't name it, and even if you didn't know Beethoven wrote it or had never heard of Beethoven, you've heard his fifth. You've at least heard the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. But most critics back in 1808 did not immediately recognize the Fifth Symphony as a masterpiece. As one source reports, there was little critical response to the premiere performance. But a year and a half later, in 1810, the critics began to catch on, and one critic in, the, in particular lauded Beethoven's fifth as with the most extravagant language he could find. He said, quote, Radiant beams shoot through this region's deep night, and we become aware of gigantic shadows, which rocking back and forth close in on us and destroy everything within us except the pain of endless longing. So he had a very, very special experience listening to Beethoven's Fifth. Uh, And then, three years later, the same critic was even more extravagant in his praise. He'd had about, you know, a good three and a half, four years to meditate on this play, on this uh, Uh, symphony. And here's what he said uh, three years after his original article. He said, how this wonderful composition in a climax that climbs on and on leads the listener imperiously forward into the spirit world of the infinite. No doubt the whole rushes like an ingenious rhapsody past many a man. But the soul of each thoughtful listener is assured 
is assuredly stirred deeply and intimately by a feeling that is none other than the unutterable, portentous longing. And until the final chord, indeed, even in the moments that follow it, it will be, he will be powerless to step out of that wondrous spirit realm where grief and joy embrace him in the form of sound. <laughs> he needed to, like, take a break. Go on vacation. Go on a cruise. Maybe retire early. He needed to take several seats. He was, he was a little too enraptured by this play. But from 1808 to today, Beethoven's Fifth has grown in popularity and power since that premiere performance in Vienna back on that cold December evening. Now the whole world knows those, those four immortal notes. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, if you've never heard of Beethoven, you've heard that. Everyone in the world knows this masterpiece. In, I, in Isaiah 40 to 55, the Bible gives us the world premiere of heaven's masterpiece. Scholars have identified four poetic passages in these chapters that are addressed as direct speech from God to the Messiah. These four passages are referred to as the servant songs. The servant songs. Like four great parts or movements of a divine symphony. We've already listened to one of these servant songs back in chapter 42, verses 1 to 7. In our passage this morning, we listen in to the second servant song of Isaiah, chapter 49, and it goes from verses 1 to 12. And like Beethoven's fifth, which began with a concert hall in Vienna and now is heard across the globe, the world premiere of Isaiah's messianic symphony begins with a small audience of Israelites in exile in Babylon. But eventually, up to this very morning, it will be heard in every land by every people throughout the ages. And you, sitting here, listening to a sermon on something that was written hundreds and thousands of years ago, are proof that it came true. Proof positive that this song is recognized around the world. Because here you are, in fulfillment of the scriptures. I know you probably didn't realize that when you came to church this morning, you'd be fulfilling prophecy. But you are. The chapter opens with the nations called to attention. This is a prophecy for the whole world, not just for Israel. Now, it is delivered by Isaiah to Israel, but it is not for Israel alone. Isaiah addresses himself to the nations in verse 1. First part of verse 1 says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. This oracle from the Lord is a word from heaven to all peoples. This is a glorious announcement of the Messiah, who is the Lord, Jesus Christ. And this servant song proclaims the gospel of Christ in its Old Testament prophetic form 
as far as it had been revealed up to that point in Isaiah's day. And in this servant song and throughout chapter 49, Isaiah prophesies two primary things. And those two things will be our two main points this morning in your little sermon insert booklet. First, in verses 1 to 7, Isaiah prophesies the life of the servant king. This life breaks down into two parts. Isaiah uh, prophesies the servant's earthly life, verses 1 to 4, and his heavenly life, verses 5 to 7. Second, Isaiah prophesies our life under the servant king. So point one, the life of the servant king, and then point two, our life under the servant king. And this also breaks down into two parts. The life of the Christian, verses 8 to 13, and the life of the church, verses 14 to 26, the end of the chapter. So let's start with point one, the life of the servant king. And I've got to just give you a survey of this chapter because this could be, this could have its own series. We could just spend the next six weeks just looking at each section of this glorious chapter, this second servant song. But we'll just do an overview, a survey of it today. And we'll start with point one, the life of the servant king, verses one to seven. And we start with his earthly life, his this section goes through the life of the Messiah, the life of Jesus, and it begins with his earthly life, with his birth in verse 1, and it culminates with his heavenly life, his return at the end of the age. So we're going to go through the life of Jesus prophesied in this first section. And you can see this in, in chapter uh, 49, verse 1. The second half begins with the earthly life of Jesus. It says, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named me. The earthly life begins with his conception and his birth. Christ was called from the very womb of his mother, Mary, named as the Messiah from the first Named, designated as the Son of God, the elect servant of God from before his birth. Next it moves in verse 2 to the public ministry of Christ. Verse 2 says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. Notice here the power of the public ministry of Jesus. The power of Christ's preaching was the source of his strength. You see, it says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. And in the book of Revelation, when the Lord returns riding on the stallion at the end, it says a sharp double-edged sword comes out of his mouth, which is the word of God. The power of Christ was not to come in and physically overpower anybody. He came in with the sharp sword of the preaching of the word. It was his doctrine and his instruction that communicated his authority. Christ's might was in his word. Preaching was his weapon of choice. And thus we see the power of the preached word today. The shadow of the hand of the Almighty falls upon the preacher. 
And he is taken up like a polished arrow. And he lets fly the word of God. And I just, that's what I do. I just take the word and I just scatter it. I'm just shooting arrows of the word across a congregation. In the sanctuary, the fellowship hall, out here. No matter who's listening, anywhere else around in the park. I'm just shooting these arrows of the word being preached. It's going out. And what happens is the Holy Spirit guides those arrows to exactly who needs to hear it in exactly the way they need to hear it. And that's why I can preach one word to a group this large who come from all sorts of different situations and backgrounds and you got this thing happening in your life which has completely different from this guy's experience and her uh, situation and their circumstances. And yet that same preached word can be effectively applied to each unique heart. That's the Holy Spirit. I ain't that smart. I don't know how to pinpoint everything that you need to hear from the pulpit today. But the Holy Spirit has the power to do that. To guide those arrows of preaching. And to let them land with power and to stick fast deep in the heart. Not to wound and maim and kill anything except your sin and your flesh. To allow the new and glorious image of Christ to be formed in you. God guides the word to its intended target in the congregation. And Jesus was the best at this. He was the most extraordinary preacher. And that was the source of his power in his public ministry. It was the word of God. The next stage in the earthly life of Christ. This is just a survey today. The next stage comes in verse 3. It says, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now we're going to see not just the power of his public ministry, which was his power of preaching, but now the purpose of his public ministry. Notice in this verse, Christ is called Israel. Now you might stop and think, now wait a minute, there's already an Israel. So how do you know he's talking to Christ? How do you know he's not just talking to the nation of Israel? Well, because later in the passage, the person who's being addressed refers to Israel in the third person. So the one who's called Israel refers to Israel. An individual is called Israel in verse 3, referring to the nation of Israel over there. Israel, the individual, is called to save corporate Israel over there, the nation. So that's how this, you see the differentiation between these two things. Israel here is an individual. Christ is here called Israel. Israel. And why? Because he is the true Israel. He is the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the faithful Israelite in whom all of God's promises will be fulfilled and all his purposes accomplished. Christ is the chosen instrument to bring to fulfillment the purposes and plans of God for history and for the world. Where Adam in the garden failed, Christ will succeed. Where Israel in the land failed, Christ will be victorious. He will prevail. That is his promise. And in Jesus Christ, God will lay bare the hidden recesses of his glory. The depths of his beauty and majesty are unveiled in the beauty and glory of Christ. As it says, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. God is uniquely, fully, 
perfectly, majestically, wondrously glorified. No higher and greater and clearer than in Christ. And that's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 6, he says, even if the gospel we preached is, we preach is veiled so that the people, they just can't see it. There's a veil over their eyes and they just can't see the gospel for what it is. Even if the gospel is veiled to other people, to us, we see the light of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus, who is God's image. Jesus is the fullest revelation of the deepest glory of God. You want to see the glory of God fully? Look to the Gospels. Look in the face of Jesus. This was the purpose of his ministry, to be the true Israel who brings to fulfillment the plan of redemption and in whom God is most glorious for us. And the last part of the earthly life of Christ that's prophesied here is verse 4. It says, but I said, I have labored in vain. So you just got, you're my servant, Israel. I've chosen you. You're going to glorify me. You are a sharp arrow in my quiver. I, I'm going to fulfill my purposes through you. And then this Messiah says in verse 4, I've labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. But then he concludes, he doesn't stay there. He concludes, yet surely my right, my vindication is with the Lord, and my recompense is with my God. Here we have come to the end of Christ's earthly life in this prophecy. We saw his birth, his powerful public ministry of preaching. He is Israel incarnate. He is the one who's fulfilling God's purposes. He is going to glorify God, and the apex of that glory comes on the cross when he is cut off. And it looks as though, it looks as though everything has been in vain. Right, This was the hour that looked like the enemies of God had won their greatest victory on the cross. Ha! We got him. Yeah, he raised the dead. He opened the eyes of the blind. He could walk on water. He could do all this mighty stuff. But now look at him. We got him. And from the cross, as, were, as it were, Jesus cries out, I have labored in vain. All that public ministry I've been doing, it's in vain. I have spent my strength. I'm empty of strength. It's for nothing. It's for vanity. And yet, surely my right is with the Lord. This prophecy says Jesus will be cut off. And at the cross, it will appear as though his work has come to nothing. However, God will vindicate him and raise him up. And that's the confidence of this servant in verse 4. Yet surely my vindication, my right is with the Lord, and he will reward me. That finishes this prophecy of his earthly life. Now we jump, verse 5 to 7, to the earthly, excuse me, to the heavenly, from the earthly to the heavenly life of Jesus prophesied here. Verse 5, and now, you can see it's a transition, and now, next phase, the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. The very first thing we see in the heavenly life of Christ prophesied here is the outcome of his death. 
Now it's revealed what, it, what he has accomplished. It looked like he accomplished nothing, verse 4. But now what has he accomplished, verse 5? He has accomplished redemption. He has brought Jacob back to him. He has gathered Israel to him. The one who's called Israel has gathered Israel in verse 5. Like the lost sheep that have gone astray. Jesus has gathered his people back to him. He has redeemed and saved and fetched his people from the ends of the earth. And therefore he is highly honored and exalted by the Lord. Because he accomplished redemption, Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him, raised him from the dead. And Jesus didn't just come up out of the tomb. He kept on going. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We just said we believe that. That's where he's seated. He didn't just raise a little bit. He raised up to the heights of heaven. And he rules and reigns today. He is honored in the eyes of the Lord. God has become his strength. He said, my strength is spent in verse 4. And now God Almighty is his strength. He has been exalted. Verse 6, we see the exalted glory of Christ. It says, I love verse 6. It is too, this is God talking to Jesus. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It is too light. It's too small. It ain't enough glory, my son. For you to just save the Jews, the Israelites, who I've chosen. No, 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 no. You need more glory than that. You're going to get way more than that. You are going to be, it says, I will make you as a light to the nations. Not just this nation, all of them. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus, what he accomplished, isn't just for Israel. It is for the nations. The light of his glory will shed abroad upon the whole earth. It will dawn upon an unsuspecting world shrouded in darkness whose eyes had adjusted to that darkness and did not know they were lost. And his triumph will go forth to the ends of the earth. I love this picture of God the Father after the resurrection, after the ascension, he looks at his son who has accomplished redemption and he says, oh no, not just Israel, son. We are going public. It is going to be a world premiere of your glory, of your saving power. Not just for Israel. And finally, Isaiah finishes this whole first section of the life of the servant king. We've seen his earthly life. We are seeing now his heavenly life. Verse 7 rounds it off. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. The servant or slave of rulers Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. God says to his Messiah, the Father speaks to his Son, and he speaks to him of his future return. The last stage in the heavenly life of Christ, his final return. 
when he comes back, the one who was despised and rejected, the one who appeared to be lowly and servile in his first coming, shall be the one to whom all kings of the earth will bow the knee in homage and worship. And he will rule from the rising of the sun to its setting to the very ends of the earth. And that's why Isaiah addresses his prophecy to all peoples and all nations in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. There is one who will be born in Bethlehem's manger, but he will rule from the new Jerusalem one day. And though the kings of the earth rage and fight and reject and spit and curse and cast him off and want nothing to do with him, who will not bow the knee, who will not recognize the lordship of Jesus, who despise the crown rights of King Jesus and fight his people and oppress the saints and batter and bruise the church throughout the ages and in every nation, though the nations rage, what does God do in heaven? Psalm 2, he laughs. He holds them in derision. He mocks them with scorn. And he says, be warned, O kings. The day is coming when the highest emperor imaginable in earth's history will have to get on his face and lick the dust at the feet of the king. That is what is coming. And the ends of the earth will know it. This is the world premiere of the world's destiny. And our job is to be people from the future. People who belong to that future, who are living in this fallen evil present, who are announcing that future and telling kings and all peoples, that day is coming, bow to Jesus today. In light of the future day, when you will bow, whether you like it or not. So bow out of the grace in your heart today, or bow because he will force you to your knees when he comes to judge the earth. This is a fantastic, glorious prophecy, this second servant song. And now, in light of this second servant song, what is life under the servant king like? If this is the life of the servant king, what's life like for us under that king? This is Isaiah's second big point of section 2, verses 8 to 26. And again, I wish we could spend more time, but we'll just hit the highlights. The servant's song does not end at verse 7. It continues as God proceeds to address the Messiah in verse 8. He says, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. God speaking to the Messiah. In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you. And give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land. To apportion the desolate heritages. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. This backtracks just a bit from verses 1 to 7. It backtracks to the resurrection of Jesus that's prophesied in verses 4 to 5. And it expands on the prophecy of verse 6. You'll be a light to the nations. It expands on that promise. Because here Christ is made not just light, but a covenant. He says, I will make you a covenant to the people. Christ's prayers, in other words, will be heard. Isn't that what it says? In a time of favor, I've answered you. 
in a day of salvation, I've helped you. Christ's prayers for his people will be answered. And we see Christ praying at different times in the Gospels. John 17 is high priestly prayer. And we're told about his prayers in other sections of Scripture. We're told in Hebrews that Christ cried out for deliverance from death with tears. And you can see this in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, if it's possible, let the cup pass. But nevertheless, Lord, I am surrendered to you, whatever you want. And Hebrews says he was heard because of his many tears. And that does not mean he was spared from death. It means he was raised up from death. The prayer to be spared from death does not mean you won't die. It means you'll be raised from the dead. As with Christ, so with us. He was heard. Christ's prayers will be answered. And God answers by keeping him, preserving him from death, raising him from death. He did not leave his anointed to see corruption, but raised him up, never to die again, immortal forever. And now he gives his son, not only as a saving light to those who sit in darkness, but as a covenant for his people establishing his kingdom and bringing redemption to the earth. This is the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah and Ezekiel as well as Isaiah. A covenant by which Israel as the people of God are reformed, redefined, reconstituted under the Messiah instead of under Moses. So you got the old covenant under Moses and God's people are defined around Moses and the law of Moses and the whole old covenant administration. Now there's a new covenant. Moses is done. He served his purpose. The old covenant has grown old and passed away. It's come to an end. And now the Messiah is here. So we're not under Moses anymore. Now the new covenant's here. So we're not under the old law anymore. We're under Christ now and that means the people of god have to be redefined around this new messiah and this new covenant and that's why the new covenant people of god is referred to as israel in the new testament it's just israel the old israel redefined now it's jews and gentiles not just jews but it's the same people of god under the covenant. This is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's why we're called children of Abraham in the New Testament. Because now we're in Abraham's covenant. Except it's not Abraham's covenant as defined by the Old Testament under Moses. Now it's Abraham's covenant under a new covenant with the Messiah. But it's all one people of God. All one people of God. Here we're being promised this new covenant, that Jesus will be the covenant mediator. I will give you as a covenant to the peoples. So life, this is, again, life of a Christian under the servant king. What's your life, Christian? You're in covenant with God through Christ. You're a member of the new covenant. You are a member of the people of God. You are an heir of God's promises that he's bound to give to you by his covenant in christ christ is the guarantee that god's promises to you will be fulfilled he has bound himself to you promised you in covenant that he will make good all his promises 
that he will keep his word. So your life as a Christian is a life in covenant with God through Christ. That's verse 8. Verses 9 to 10. Here's where it gets a little more personal for you. When the saving light of Christ illumines the earth, here is the word of the gospel and the mercy of the covenant extended to you. Verses 9 to 11. He says to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways on all the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. No scorching wind or sun will strike them. He who has pity on them will lead them, and on and on it goes. What has he promised for you? What is your life under the servant king supposed to be like? What's the mercy of this covenant he extends and promises to you, Christian? He promises you his salvation. He says, come out of prison from the prison house of sin, from the dungeon, the pit of darkness we sat in before we knew Christ. He will call you forth. He will absolve you of your crimes. The crimes and sins that put you in that dungeon as a prisoner, he will pardon. He will absolve. He will forgive. He will save. He will provide for you. He will feed you. You will not hunger or thirst, Jesus says, if you believe in him. He will give you his protection so the sun and the wind will not strike and scorch. He will sanctify you, taking pity on you, leading you, guiding you to the rich, satisfying waters of life as you grow and follow him. And finally, he will give you safe passage to heaven. You, Christian, are promised here in this prophecy, safe passage to heaven. In verse 11, I will make all my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar and behold, these from the north and from the west and these from the land of Syene. He's saying, all my people from all over the world, you're coming to me. And if I have to lower mountains, if I have to raise valleys, if I have to make crooked passageways straight, I will move heaven and earth to get you home with me. That's my covenant promise. Safe passage to heaven. Protection and provision and salvation and sanctification in this life. And heaven and joy and glory at the end. And that's why verse 13 breaks into singing. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? Because verse 1 in chapter 40 has been fulfilled. Comfort, comfort my people. Because the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. One day the afflictions of your life will be over and you will have joy forever where every tear is wiped away. And it's only peace and beauty and the glorious face of your Lord forever. This is your life under the servant king. And we come to the last section this morning. We've seen life under the servant king for the individual Christian. Now, last point, life of the church. Not just the individual, but the church. Under the servant king. Verses 14 to 26. Now in verse 14 it says. But Zion said. You see how now it's a change of subject. Sing for joy. Break out. Shout. Get happy. Rejoice. Celebrate. 
That's verse 13. Then verse 14, it's a change of tone. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord's forgotten me. What's happened? We, we went from the peaks of the joy of paradise in verse 13. And now Zion is saying, God abandoned me. What's happened? Well, now we're talking about the life of the church under this servant king. Now follow this. Zion here refers to and stands for the church under the new covenant. Zion is Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and the mountain, Mount Zion, where the temple in the presence of God dwells. Now that's literal, physical, old covenant reality for Israel. But under the new covenant, remember Christ will be given as a covenant to the people, under the new covenant, under the Messiah's covenant, which is a more spiritual covenant, under the new covenant in Christ, the church is the new Israel. Christ himself is called Israel in verse 3, and all his people who are united to him by faith and bound to him by covenant constitute the new Israel, the new covenant people of God. Not two different peoples of God, Jews over there and Gentiles over here, Old Testament over here and New Testament over there, but there's a reason that you have one Bible, not two. There's not the Jews' Bible and the Christians' Bible. But there's one Bible, not two. There's not two different salvations. There's one way of salvation. Not, not two. One. One plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. Not two. And what unites your Bible? What makes the people of God united? What makes the Bible united? What makes salvation united? What, what connects all this from Genesis to Revelation? It's the covenant. We are one people of God under two different covenants. An old covenant with Moses, a new covenant with Jesus, but one plan of salvation, one people of God. So Zion here in this prophecy, now literally in Isaiah's day, Zion just means Zion. Go to, go to Israel, go to the Temple Mount, go to Jerusalem, Zion. But in this prophecy, the ultimate fulfillment doesn't happen on a rock in Israel. It happens in the church for all nations. Hebrew Israel was the Old Testament church, and Christian Israel is the New Testament church, but they're both called Israel. And they're all together, the one people of God throughout all the ages and all the nations under two different covenants. So when we see Zion here, we're thinking about the church. Zion said, the people of God, the church says today, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord's forgotten me. What's going on here? Well, from verses 14 to 16, we get this description of how the church suffers many trials and tribulations in this fallen evil age. But Christ loves his bride with all his heart, and he will never fail her or forsake her. Look at this, this glorious, marvelous verse. Verse 15 and 16. Can a woman... Forget her nursing child. That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. It's a rhetorical question. Absolutely not. Of course she doesn't forget her child. Of course 
she has deep compassion and love for her child. And then verse 15 says, Even these may one day forget. Even these might forget. Yet I will not forget you. If it's unthinkable for you that you could ever stop loving your child, a nursing child, your newborn son or daughter, if it's unthinkable to you that you would just abandon, not care for, disregard, neglect, get rid of your own child, if that's unthinkable, it should be so much more unthinkable to you that God could ever abandon his church. That Christ would ever leave or forsake his church. And then you get verse 16. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. He says to the church, I have graven your name on my hands. Your name is graven on my heart. And the shape of your name is the nail scar. That's how he spells your name. With a puncture wound from a Roman nail. That's the proof that he will love you infinitely forever. You as an individual Christian and also his church. He loves his church, his bride that much. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. For her life he died. He loves his church. When it says that your walls are continually before me, he means your defense and protection is my constant concern. I will always defend you. And we don't have time to keep reading through the chapters. Several more verses left. So let me summarize what's left in the chapter. Verses 17 to 18, Christ will build his church and he will cause the nations to stream into it In verse 17, he says, your builders will make haste. The builders or building blocks of the church refers is referred to by Paul. In Ephesians 2, when he says that the church is being built up as the people of God are converted to Christ. So what are the what are the stones by which the church is built? Converts streaming into the church. He will see to it that the enemies of the church will depart And the nations will be discipled and the church will be on adorned like a bride preparing to meet her husband. Verses 19 to 22. The converts from the nations will be so great in number. Israel will complain that the Holy Land is not nearly big enough. You read verses 19 to 22 and Israel's like, oh my goodness, where did all these people come from? Remember, they're in exile. So when they get back, they're like, why are there so many people? We're overrun with people. We're not going to have room for all these. And that's the point. Because God is going to make Israel way bigger than just Israel. Way bigger than just the Jews. He is bringing in the Gentiles and the nations as well. And the Holy Land wouldn't be even close to big enough to hold them all. So great will be the harvest. So great will be the number of God's elect who are redeemed from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Finally, in verses 23 to 26, I am going to read these to finish out. 23 to 26, he says, Kings shall be your foster fathers. Talking to the church. 
Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And then the last part of the chapter, into verse 26. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This prophecy tells us that the church will go and make disciples of all nations. That's the Great Commission. Kings and governors will bow to the lordship of Jesus. Whole governments will submit themselves and recognize his authority. And they will fulfill their duty of preserving the church and promoting the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And if you read those verses, it tells you that tyrannical governments will oppose and oppress the church until the very end when they finally fail and come to nothing and fall apart, destroying themselves from the inside out. But though the nations fall and fail, Christ and his church will reign triumphant forever and ever to the glory of God as all flesh one day acknowledges that Jesus is Lord. And that starts now. It's the church's vocation. It's our calling as the church to start telling the powers that be this message now. That you, government, king, emperor, president, congress, parliament, I don't care who you are or who you think you are. Christ holds the crown and he is Lord of the church, not you. And he is Lord of my conscience, not you. So squawk and peep and run about and cause all sorts of trouble for me in the church. Fine, do your worst. God in heaven laughs and mocks at you. You do not win in the end. We serve another Lord, not you. The church, we have a church government. It's Presbyterian. It's nice. It's a good church government. It's not the federal government or a state government. It's a different government that Jesus instituted, and it has legitimate authority under Jesus. And the state, you have legitimate authority under Jesus, but you don't have full jurisdiction over the church That belongs to Jesus, and you need to recognize that. And so there will come a point when Christians and churches will have to say, we must obey God rather than man. This tells us to be bold and to do that, starting now, until the Lord returns to finish the job. So let me conclude this way with a couple of practical takeaways as we end this morning. The life of the Christian and the life of the church is under the lordship of the servant king, Jesus Christ. He has graven you, Christian, upon his hands and upon his heart. You are precious to him. He will never leave you or forsake you. He'll see to it that you make it to the end and inherit eternal salvation. So take great comfort today and be of good cheer. Christ has saved you forever. You cannot be lost. Second takeaway. Likewise, Jesus loves not just the individual Christian, you. He loves his church with all his heart and all his soul. He watches over her and cares for her. And he will see to it 
that his bride endures to the end and inherits the crown of eternal life, reigning with Christ as queen of the nations. The day is coming when all governments and all nations will bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, and they will begin to govern as his loyal subjects. And then when that starts to happen, we will truly see the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, which is what we pray for every Sunday. Our job is to, be, is to begin working towards that future fulfillment of this prophecy right here, right now, in our lives, in our nation, at the Forks, in Glenmore, calling our own government to recognize the crown rights of Christ. Jesus is Lord, and that means Caesar is not, Wolf is not, Biden is not, fill in the blank, whatever nation you live in. None but Jesus owns my heart. None but Jesus is king of my life. Last takeaway. So when you see the church beaten down, persecuted, opposed, oppressed, maligned, Hated, attacked, pushed to the edges of society, stripped of her freedom to worship Jesus as he's called us to do. When you see these things happen, remember that the Lord of the church, the servant king, will fight for her and he will give her power and victory over all her foes. And when you, Christian, as an individual in your life, right where you are, when you feel weak, when you feel defeated, when you feel sorrowful, broken, or afraid, remember that you are a member of that church, you are a member of Christ's bride, and remember that Christ has conquered and overcome the world for you. Your name is engraved in His nail-scarred hands. So learn to sing these servant songs. From Isaiah. Learn these songs. Let this messianic symphony, this heavenly masterpiece, be the soundtrack of your life and the soundtrack of our church and the tune you whistle through the day. Christ is king. All is well. We win in the end. Whistle that tune. Learn this song. Sing it from your heart and praise every day with confidence and joy, with hope and courage, as you march nobly and boldly in the service of the servant king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we as a people bow to your kingship, your crown, your throne, your lordship, in our hearts and minds, in the depths of our conscience, with all of our soul, and we do it right now. We surrender all to you. Our church is yours. We're not trying to build our own little kingdoms. We want to see yours come with power. We want to see your name worshipped. We want to see your name called upon from the highest halls of authority and power in our land down to our own little prayer closets in our own homes. We want to see your name proclaimed. We want to see your church protected and promoted and preserved and go forth with power and help us to find our place in that great kingdom mission. Let your will be done 
on earth, this part where we live, right here at the Forks, right here in Glenmore, right here in our county, in our area, let your will be done and your kingdom come. May you reign and rule in our hearts and in our homes and our lives and our church right here. And then from there, may it spread and may we shine your light and bring your salvation to the, not just the ends of the earth, but to the end of our road. Give us the courage and boldness to stand as a church no matter what comes under your sovereign will, but to trust you. Help us to learn these servant songs, to sing the tunes of the great king and to march in his service with courage and confidence and do it for your namesake and your glory, loving and proclaiming your gospel and loving the preached word and sharing that word with all who will listen, relying upon your Holy Spirit to aim the arrows of the word, to strike the hearts as you see fit to guide those arrows. Help us to be faithful, to let the arrows fly and trust you with where they land. We ask you for it in Jesus' name, for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Amen.